Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast and I've hijacked the Mark My Words podcast. We regularly get asked for Mark and I to be kind of put together. We're off doing different things, often in different parts of the world nowadays. So I'm really excited to be bringing Mark to the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. And Mark's brought me to the Mark My Words podcast. And in this special episode, the joint episode, really what we're going to do is really get into Mark's head and maybe a bit from me as well about business finance investing, you know, what we stand for, what we stand against, some of the things Mark loves about business and life, some of the things he hates and, you know, wants to see change. So it's going to be kind of like a, almost like a behind the scenes conversation that Mark might and I might have if we're upstairs in our office. So um, Mark, this is everyone, everyone, this is Mark. If you don't know Mark, because you subscribe to The Disruptive Entrepreneur, Mark's been my business partner now for 11 years. Most things I know about money and finance and business have either come from Mark's brain or he's got me down a path so I can be down the right path to learn the right strategies. Definitely, if it weren't for Mark, then um, I probably still would have been painting at two in the morning listening to German heavy metal. So my life has definitely been transformed for the positive through being business partners with Mark. Mark, how many properties have we got now that we've bought, sold, own, manage in total? Well, we, we manage about 700 tenants. Got to be, I don't know, over 550 properties, units, something like that. Yeah. We've bought, sold, you know, have invested in over the years easily that number. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, still doing it. Yeah. Still buying them, still keeping them. Yeah. Yeah, love doing it. So you've been doing property now about 14 years because I think you had about three years already experienced before we met, something like that? Yeah, so I got into this market 02, 03, started investing abroad. So 15 years. Yeah, 02, 03, yeah. Started investing abroad and then started buying and refurbing and yeah. then remortgaging, you know, when, when I met you. Yeah. Local terraces, you know, that's what, what really got me started on yeah. this journey. Probably The, the ugly ones. The but ugly ones yeah. probably started in 05 <laughs> and that's what, you know, what really worked yeah. and what we really grew. Still got the same passion for property 15 years on? I absolutely love property, probably to the same extent. However, I love doing different things. If yeah. I still had to buy the same terraces and do all the stuff that we did back then, I think yeah. my passion would have waned a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I've moved through the cycle to different types of deals, to, right. to bigger buildings, yeah. to um, yeah, to, to, to buildings with more income and a really a better use of my time. So something I know you're really big into is not chopping and changing every five minutes. And I think you've stumbled upon something there that I think is really important to share. So you've talked about doing the same thing, property, but keeping yourself interested over the years. Because if you did single lets for 15 years, it sounds like you'd get bored. But of course, if you changed strategy every five minutes, it sounds like you wouldn't be able to get uh, compounding and results. So how do you balance staying in the same business model for a long time and keeping yourself interested? For me, it's, it's, it's about creating that nebula. So you, you've got a, a, a circle of knowledge or a sphere of knowledge. And that might be property investment. And you might be good at you know, buying stuff, increasing the density, increasing the rent that comes out of it 
and then leveraging it. And yeah. really that's what I've become good at over the years. Yeah. So buying stuff cheap, adding quite a lot of value to it, and then obtaining really good leverage to get most, if not all, of the money back. So that's something that I've I've focused on and, and just kind of dragged out across lots of different lots of different mediums. So yeah. that might have started with you know, smaller properties, and then that's built up to, you know, evaluation I'm doing this afternoon would be for a 38 bedroom HMO yeah. split across a load of units. That'll be somewhere around 2.3 million in terms of value once it's done. So, you know, that's, I've tried to use the knowledge I've got and go one or two steps removed, but not go chopping and changing into a completely different area. Yeah. You know, yes, invest in stocks, yes, might do some other passive type stuff but you know that's that's secondary and I don't spend that much time on it yeah core strategy is buying investment you know mostly residential property there is some commercial in there as well but I certainly don't like flitting around stuff that I don't know anything about that's a long way away from my my sphere of knowledge yeah I think you taught me a lot about that because before I met you, I really needed a load of variety in my life. And I was probably quite opposite to you in that regard. So, you know, I'd done three martial arts, got three black belts. I'd got good at cricket, good at golf. I'd done my art. I'd uh, had been a pub landlord. I did an architecture degree. I mean, I was the guy that tried everything. And I got quite good at some things, but never great. And that was always one of my regrets. And then when I met you, you were almost the opposite in that you, you'd, it'd be a massive decision for you to change. Whereas for me, it'd be a massive decision for me to do the same thing. And so I think what you taught me is you can get your variety doing niches within your main thing. And I think that's what mm. you're saying you've done. So property is your main thing. You're not going on to the coffee business, which we'd probably love to do in a different world or some other business, but you're doing commercial, conversion, single lets, HMOs, maybe the odd test of service accommodation. So you've got this sort of overarching thing that you're going to always do for the rest of your life, but you're making your variety by doing different sub-niches within that niche. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And I think that originally it came from my dad. My dad used to watch things on TV. I remember in a TV presenter, one month would be presenting about property. And then three months later, they'd be doing a holiday show. Right, yeah. And he'd kind of look at me and go, how the hell does he know anything about holidays yeah. when he was doing property three months ago? Mm. You know, and you see it with politicians. This is a favourite one for me. You see politicians, you know, they're, they're an MP and then they become the the Secretary for Health. Now, of course, we know below them there are all these civil servants that should be, you know, well experienced and, and, and doing something for, for for a long time. But but then there's a reshuffle and, you know, the, the Secretary for Health suddenly becomes the Home Secretary and deals with, you know, law, order, justice, you know, and prisons. Yeah. And, you know, they haven't really got any experience in yeah. that. And um, you see some of the resulting decision making and and the you know the, the stuff that that flows from that so trump got into power though trump did get into power and, <laughs> and, not a politician and, and he got got into power probably based on you know what he made people believe a certain segment of the population yeah. and um you know by 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 putting all this kind of rhetoric out i'd also say someone like trump is going to have to spend the first six months actually learning yeah. how how that job works and how, how you know all the the, the wheels of government move because he I don't think he's got a clue mm. uh, and I think he's a perfect example of somebody who obviously knows a lot about business but doesn't understand the inner workings of government because he's yeah. never been there yeah so, so it's important for you to be seen and logistically and operationally in business to have a core knowledge 
that you can get really deep at and that people know you for. Yeah, I think that's yeah. really important uh, because I think that's how you add the value. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, the, the theory's good and the theory's important, but it's that experience, that, that stuff that adds, you know, yeah. adds up over time that goes into your subconscious yeah. that gives you the, the gut feeling each time you're presenting with something new yeah. or, or presented with a deal or presented with, you know, some numbers. And, you know, all of that knowledge which you build up, the experience which yeah. goes into your subconscious and you can you can suddenly make a quick judgment on, yeah. known as gut feel. And, it, and it's right. Yeah, and, it, and it, you know, having a good result that comes from having experience in a sphere for many, many years. Yeah. If you're darting about all the time. Because that's one of your pet hates, isn't it? Either people or being forced to chop and change and flit and, you know, new thing every five minutes. It's, you just... This is probably upbringing as well, isn't it? You know, you, you um, I, I don't know, I, I, I'd see that as flaky. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. well, I mean, because you've been in business since you were, what, 17? Yeah, I had little businesses since yeah. I was probably, yeah, it was, 16 something like so that 20 so, years. Yeah. yeah and you know I, I was importing cars and i'd be doing stuff on the internet yeah. and you know bringing you know different products in and and stuff like that so they were different types of businesses yeah. and the, so i just jump in the thing is if you in the last 20 years have done loads of different things you couldn't bring that experience of 20 years ago into what you do now because it wouldn't be relevant you know if you'd have done martial arts for two years and then you'd have done holiday repping for two years and then whatever but the stuff you learned when you were 17 bringing cars over from Ireland or whatever that you can that experience lends itself now to what you do or could do doesn't it it does do because it's you know it's transactional it's commerce it's dealing with you know certain taxes sales and and, yeah sales and you know working out margin and and profit so there is some transferable knowledge which comes with that yeah so people listening like if people are starting a business or property or something like that one of the common dangers of their results is they're jumping strategies every five minutes. And obviously we see that, you know, you call it the course junkie or whatever. And, and I was definitely like that before. What advice, word of warning, whatever, would you say to someone who's seen the new shiny thing? They've only been doing the previous shiny thing for a few months. What would you say to them? Spend a few months getting really, really good at your core strategy. And fine, it might not be for you. It might not be your flow. It might not be what you love and therefore what you're going to be really good at. But you need to have a good six months, year pounding away at it to give it a chance to show its face. You know, most of the, the results that come from all the work which you, you put in, you know, they may take a few years to to, to, to show themselves. Yeah. Uh, and if you're flitting about trying something new all the time, you're never going to give it long enough to work out whether that thing was going to work for you. And, um, and you probably end up with no results. A lot of people, I find, they start, they get half halfway, 60%, 70% of the way through start to kind of have questions in their mind about whether it's going to work and, you know, is, is this right? And, you know, should I be doing something else? And then maybe about 80% of the way along, mm, but they, they switch. Yeah, and they can't, but they can't see they're that far down, otherwise no, they wouldn't. Yeah. Exactly. They, they, you know, and they look at other people and they say, oh, he's really successful, he was born that way or whatever. But actually, all of those people went through the same thing as well. They had years and years and years of, you know, maybe no success or average success and then actually it was probably in the, the mid to latter years where the success, all that work and all that time and all that experience really started to, 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 to come forward and yeah. show, show the results started to come up. Yeah. A lot of people in life are looking for fairness. I don't really believe in fairness. I believe in merit. You know, you get what you earn. 
we all get our dose of luck and how we use our dose of luck because you know I've been lucky meeting you for example but we all get our dose of luck and it's how we use it but in a way going into a strategy is kind of not fair because when you start you have to do all the work for none of the results that's kind of not fair at the end you get all the results for not much of the work and it's not fair and I think if people can get sort of fairness out of their head and just think merit and stay in the course I think they'd probably stick at things a bit longer what do you think about that I, and, I, you know this entitlement sort of age we're in at the moment yeah well they talk about it mm. um being specifically prevalent it, yeah, yeah and and those well, I've, I've seen a few people say those born in the 80s or the 90s or, or the millennials yeah. and you know i was born in 1980 so you know i'm probably in that category but yeah, yeah I, I do see more of that today you know you see it with tenants you see it with people who are in your business employees there is certainly more of an entitlement culture i don't know if that's the you know, TV, the media, society in general. but you More know, relaxed parenting. Yeah, more relaxed parenting could mm. be it as well. You know, we, we're certainly a lot softer on our kids. And yeah. maybe that's right in some way. But, you know, going to a tough school and, uh, you know, being, being, being worked really hard mm. all day. I, I watched a thing last night on, um, you know, kids in, in South Korea. And, you know, those guys, I'm not saying this is necessarily right, but... They start at six. Like they work like nutters. <laughs> they start at six yeah. and they go on, you know, through to, I don't know, well, whatever time in the afternoon. They have a bit of a break and then they go to after school club. It goes on till midnight. Yeah. So they're six till midnight every day learning. Is this what you're um, saying is um, going to be doing? You know, they, <laughs> they, 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 they gave them this um, this GCSE maths paper to, 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 to complete. And, you know, these, these guys are not, you know, they're not GCSE. They haven't studied for GCSEs and they're a bit younger than that as well. And all these South Korean kids finished them and the majority of their class, when they were asked, is it really easy? They all put their hand up and said, yeah, it's really easy. And the consensus was that that was kind of primary level maths for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, there were, there were two or three English children in there, yeah. in, in the in the class, and they were having to do the same thing. They were pretty much half asleep. Yeah. They couldn't handle it. They found it really tough. And I think that's... Um, you know, it's, it's not genetics. It's not, you know, Eng- English kids are, you know, any worse than, you know, South Korean kids. They've just had a load more discipline drilled into them from yeah. an early age. So they find it normal. And they don't find it as hard yeah. to perform at that level because yeah. they've, they've been drilled. You know, our kids, they go through their, their, their early teens and into their teens and, you know, may, maybe it's an easier life and a softer life. And it's probably more like that in America as well. Therefore, when it does get tough, it's harder for them. They, they give up because they're used to giving up yeah. and they're used to having someone who supports them. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about that. You can the do, state, yeah. you know, the, the welfare system, whatever it is, the society that we live in, you know, that's um, that's what it's taught them to do. Yeah. yeah. And how do you change that? You know, you're at some point, maybe soon, who knows, might become a dad. How do you, how do you get into people the stickability? You know, the because you and I both, and we talk about this a lot, if what you're doing now, you're doing in 20 years, no matter how bad and how slow you were to do it, how many mistakes you make, in 20 years, you're just going to be... got to be good. By, by default of everyone else giving up. Mm. So how do you drill that into someone? Well, I think maybe with, with kids, you, you probably give them a, a reward, but you make them stick the course. So, mm. you know, they only get the reward if they do X, Y, and Z and hit the result. Yeah. And, you know... You know, at the risk of uh, sounding a bit sexist, I'm, I'm the male here, so you know, I'll just say it. 
you know, if mum says, oh, well, he tried and, you know, therefore he can have X, Y and Z, well, the answer's no. You know, <laughs> he, get, he, gets, he gets the thing yeah. or she gets the thing when they've achieved the results. So yeah. they become more results focused. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, you need to be berating them or be really hard on them. My dad was pretty hard on me, but, mm. you know, I, I think... Um, you know, if they can get a lot more than the other kids by doing a lot more, then I think there's a lot of benefit there. I think sending them to the right school has got to be the right thing. Yeah. Putting them in a peer group that is very focused on results, you know, and very interested in achieving, I think is probably the biggest thing because their the peers are probably going to have the same, if not more influence than, than the parents. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's going to push them on. And I know for my kids and, and certainly what you're doing with your kids, Rob, you put them in a very high achieving school and yeah. it's tough i know bobby comes home very tired you know and, and 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 maybe that'll be the case for the first few years but it will just train his brain to yeah. be so much more focused and he'll find it easier as he goes along well i made a decision at least three years before bobby was born he was going to go to the best school i could find and um, i made sure i saved up all of his school fees until he was 18 before he was born because i just thought that's going to make the biggest difference. And, you know, like, who knows? I'm not saying it's the be all and end all, but yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so what about someone who's an adult and they're finding themselves a bit flighty? Because let's be honest, society, I don't want to sound like an old fire, but I probably am going to, but society and generation is a bit different now. You know, you're on Facebook, you're on Tinder, you're just, you, you know, if a video is more than two minutes, you've lost your concentration and everything's more yeah. instant. And so our attention span has gone really... Mad, I've noticed with you and I over the years with our iPhones, we're freaking addicted to these yeah. things. So how do we, you know, what can we say to people to get them back into the longevity thinking and the enduring the challenges and they're not giving up when it gets slightly hard, but someone who's not a child, who's already, you know, their personality's already formed. I think they need to focus on the result and probably make some public, you know, announcements yeah. and tell those around them what they're doing and what they're going to achieve by, by when. Mm. You know, somebody getting into this game, maybe they're buying property or they're investing or whatever. It might be difficult, you know, if they, they tell their family do, they're doing this or their friends, they, they, they may be a little bit negative because they don't want them to, to push ahead. So not everyone would want to do this, but certainly those around them who are, you know, in this game or a little bit more positive about it, if they say, well, this is what I'm doing, I'm doing single lets and I'm going to buy X number by this, this stage, you set a date and you know you, you put pictures up and you burn it into your brain and you, you set reminders. I think that that's got to be one of the best ways because if you don't stick to it, A, other people are probably going to think you're flaky and therefore you might not feel great about that. And I think B, you're, you're just going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot clearer to you what your goal is and yeah. you know, what, what you need to achieve at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and people are going to be asking you, what are you doing with this? What are you doing with that? You know, yeah. I think if you're, changing every six months or every year then whoever it is is um yeah. is, is going to be saying oh well you were doing this six months ago you were doing that and that, that's a classical sign that somebody's yeah. not achieving if they keep flittering around and and, and changing yeah. it is to me anyway and i'd say m most people in a um in you know who are successful in business if they see somebody chopping and changing a lot moving around different business just, types or careers or whatever you can't trust them can you no, even if it just shows that they that's what they're going to do. They're going to continue to do that, A, and B, they, they, they haven't made a success of anything yet. Yeah. Well, you know, each time we in, we were interviewing someone today for a high-level role, and each time you and I see a CV that's got a job every year, 
they've got to fight really hard to, to it's hardly ever we get anyone in and I think longevity is one of the biggest signs of a successful person mm. okay so Mark I've had the pleasurable experience and the challenging experience of being involved with you writing your two books challenging in the draw, drawing out 50,000 words has uh, been a challenge although we've been in great countries doing it Okay, so Mark, I've got my rather small iPad here. I asked you before the podcast yeah. some of the things you love and some of the things you hate. Yeah. So you hate swapping and changing, we've covered. You hate investment on a whim. Talk about that then. Yeah, so for me, I think, I think all investments need to be tested and measured, okay? And, you know, rather than just being, in my early days, I'd probably, new stuff I'd probably be relatively negative about. And, you know, I'd, I'd see it and I'm saying, wow, we haven't done that before. It's not, we're not, we're not, we've not tested it. Therefore, not interested in it, cast it aside. And that probably, you know, I probably wouldn't do most opportunities that I'm presented with now because there's so many more opportunities than I've got time to deal with anyway. Yeah. But of course, there are loads of things which are just one step removed from our core strategies, which work really, really well and which you can make a lot of money from. But it isn't necessarily what we're doing. And yeah, I, I've, they've been referred to me by people I trust and like and, you know, they, they, they look good. But the, the only way in the end to work out if they work in our business with us, you know, and are in my flow and your flow is to, to try them over a period of time. Now, testing and measuring involves doing one or two and effectively proving concept. Yeah. So you might have a, a new kind of investment type. Uh, maybe it's serviced accommodation. So you do one and you maybe test it over a six month period and get all the data, you know, make sure, you know, I understood it backwards, forwards, and then maybe do another and then roll it out. So what, what you're saying, instead of doing none and never yeah. doing anything new or 15 all at once, yeah. you're essentially de-risking going into a new model. Yeah, because I see a lot of people, you know, see something new and go and do 15 yeah. before they've tested and measured. Yeah, because they're uh, excited. They're all excited and then they make the same mistake 15 times yeah. <laughs> on about 10 different things and it ends up costing them quite a lot of money yeah. or they don't make such a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, whereas when you really understand the model and you've done it well, then when you multiply it up over a lot of units or a lot of a bigger investment, then you tend to, to do really well and get greater returns. Yeah. And of course, the flip side, if, you, if you're just you know, negative to anything new, well, the, the first thing is obviously you'll, you'll lose quite a lot of opportunities. You know, the opportunity cost of that is quite high. And the second thing is it's, it's quite important to have one eye on new stuff mm. because the existing business you're in at the moment, although it won't change that much, people always want to live in houses, things will change. And if you stay exactly how you are today and your business stays exactly how it is and you do exactly the same things, you will eventually die. Yeah. We've know, seen it in property, sale and rent back, those yeah. that didn't adjust from that. And then Mortgage Express, those that didn't adjust from that. They seem to be massive and then they just disappear off the yeah. face of the earth. And, the, and then you have the credit crunch, you had yeah. to adjust from that. And now we've got the landlord Brexit. tax la landlord tax changes, which yeah. are, you know, people are moving into a limited company. And, and of course, the, uh, you know, the the new FCA rules on rent stress and, you know, how mortgages are, mortgages are probably going to be less in terms of loan to value to individuals moving forward. Yeah. So people need to adapt and people need to move their strategy. And maybe they were doing single lets, but, you know, maybe they move more into HMOs or into yeah. to other strategies as well as. Do I think it's the death of single let? No, I don't. I think that's nonsense. And 
I, I think that's what people said, you know, when the credit crunch came along, when the end of Mortgage Express was was nigh, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and prior to that, when, when rent, you know, rent back stopped or, you know, when, when um, you couldn't do, yeah, when you can basically rent somebody's property back yeah. to them. So all of those things mean you've got to change, move, not necessarily pivot completely, but, yeah. but, but, but just move the trajectory, trajectory of the strategy slightly. Yeah to make sure your business model still works. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you have to reinvent the whole thing. And that is you. Well, you like evolution, not revolution, Absolutely. don't you? You like Porsche, not Ferrari. Evolution <laughs> rather than rather than revolution is, yeah. is certainly, you know, my yeah. the, the way in which I work. And I, I think the way you balance this, because the thing I've had to learn over the years is trying to curb my desire for variety in business but also feed my desire for variety in business. You can't change who you are. And so I think what I've learned to do is you have your main thing. So I created this model 702010, which is based on what you taught me in the early years. So let's say property single lets is your main thing. You do that for 70% of your time. And you do that for 70% of your time all day, every day, until it completely gets disrupted and doesn't work anymore. But then you spend 20% of your time or your evenings or your weekends, that's when you play around and test your new stuff. So it's almost like you've got incubating this new stuff. So that as your main thing changes over time, and it will change slowly, you've got this thing on the background, which isn't taking your day to day out. And then as things change, you can bring this more in. You know, for us, like we were buying single lets and then I you know, started writing our first book and then we did our first course. And for years we were doing way more property buying than we were courses. And now it must be, well, most of your time still buying, but most of my time's in the education business. Had we not spent a bit of my time writing books evenings and weekends and had we not done, done the odd weekend course, we wouldn't have grown into that. Mm. So you can almost have a strategy, can't you, of where you're doing your main thing most of the time, but you can have your creative variety outlet evenings, weekends, or in ring-fenced amount of time. I think that is, you know, that, that 70-20-10 model which you came up with is often the way I put it. You absolutely need to have one eye on what else is going on, mm. but don't just jump into that new thing. A, before it's tried and tested, preferably by a few other people yeah. first. You love doing that, it don't usually, you? I usually wait until... You always let me go first. <laughs> I usually wait until two or, two or three other people who I you know, respect and have time for you know, are doing something and have told me that the thing works. Then... So that's testing, vicarious testing. Vicarious testing. Stay friends with them. Obviously, I'm supplying them with information about models that I'm doing, so it's a two-way street. Then bring it in, test it and measure it in our business and with me and in, see if it works with what we're doing. Yeah, because people say, oh, the, you know, the best way to learn is from your mistakes. You're basically saying, no, it's not. <laughs> learn from someone else's mistakes. Let them make the mistakes. I think learning from, uh, from other people's mistakes is... Cheaper. <laughs> is, is absolutely cheaper and, and, and in many ways the key to life. Yeah. You know, over the years, I've, I've had, um, I've been, just been friends with loads of older guys who, yeah. um, you know, have, have had businesses and, you know, and, and have kind of done it. And, um, you know, they, I've got quite a few as my mentors. And, um, you know, I see that, you know, yeah, we have a, a great friendship, but I see that as like a 30, 40 year accelerated, mm. you know, learning process whereby, They've done most of this stuff. They've made most of these big mistakes yeah. and they can give you kind of generic uh, yeah. information and, 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 and principles. So what would you say to people who challenge that? Oh, like, oh, no, you've just got to go out there and do it yourself, make mistakes. You don't need courses and mentors. You just go out there and do it yourself. Well, you can, but, you know, in many ways, it'll take you a hell of a lot longer. 
A and B, you'll end up making a lot more mistakes. You know, if you go along and, I don't know, talk to a lender or talk to a, a solicitor or talk to an accountant about how to invest in buy to let, well, they're going to give you some some kind of ideas, but they've not really done it themselves often. Don't know how to do it quickly or, or the way that makes you the most money. They're probably going to be telling you something that benefits their business and mm. and and creates the most deals for them or, or you know make makes them money so yeah. i think it's quite important to to learn from those who have actually done it before you know you need to walk in their footsteps yeah this 70 20 10 thing or your main thing and then other things on the side i think that's really important in money allocation as well and asset allocation and if i look at some of the big things i've seen go wrong over the years from people or businesses it's often because they're overexposed in one thing. So do you want to talk about that? So like, you know, you have well, both of us, property, stocks, watches, bonds, Lego, cash, gold, blah, blah, blah. So would you sort of use the 70, 20, 10 or 70, 25, 2, 1, similar thinking in terms of where you allocate your money and your assets? Yeah. So f- for me, property is the 70 and this business is the 70 and the training business is the 70, but, but the 20 and the 10 would be things like stocks or, or bonds or you know the maybe watches or or those other smaller things that I probably I don't know quite as much about and I'm not on the ground yeah. and and involved in quite so much but I feel like I know enough to enable me to make direct investments yeah. and if you um, start if you start putting 1 or 2% of your wealth into a new class if you make a massive mistake and lose it all, you only lose one or two percent of your wealth. Exactly, and most of the time you wouldn't, as long as you you spend long enough learning about it and get the experience yeah. over a long period of time as to you know what general principles yeah. are applicable. Because it always makes me laugh. You know, you get people coming out saying, "Oh, you need all your money in gold now," oh, yeah. or "You need all your money in this." <laughs> I mean, that's surely the dumbest thing ever. Well, it's just it's nonsense, isn't it? It's always nonsense. Yeah. Uh, all your money in anything is a yeah. bad idea. You know, if you go and see a financial advisor, that'll be the the first thing he does he'll he'll work out you know all of your investment preferences and your attitude to risk and all that sort of stuff and he'll he'll take you through the fca kind of approved system to find out where you are in your life and how much risk you want to take on and then what he'll do he'll offer you a load of assets which go into you know into the markets which are spread across a load of equities bonds and you know different asset classes um and that's just the the key, the, the the foundations to investment. So what are your thoughts on focus versus diversification? How much should you focus? How much should you diversify? Well, I think if you want to make you want to make big money, you absolutely need to focus. Yeah. And you want to make big money, you need a business usually. Yeah. Or, you know, really a great investment strategy like, you know, buying properties and, you know, getting tenants in and remortgaging them, all, all that stuff that we do. I think that makes you big money, but it is one asset class. You know, property, I think, is, is, is relatively secure. Having your own business, I think that is certainly more cyclical and definitely less secure than, say, having some gold or having, you know, maybe some, some money in a FTSE tracker or something like that. But if you, you have your own business, you know, the returns that you could get from that could be several hundred, often several thousand percent yeah. per annum. You know, that's normal. Yeah. You know, people grow a business from a pound you know, and then, you know, after decades, they may be making millions of pounds. So it's, yeah. it's, it, it's a huge amount of growth. But of course, a recession could come along or there could be other issues and that, that business could, um, you know, have a problem. So I think it's very important to spend your 70% on things that are very high growth, but that you really know you're involved in every day. You know, like the back of your hand. 
And then when you get the money from that, you diversify all that money away into lower risk, but probably lower return asset classes as well. And they're more diversified and spread yeah. across those lower risk, low, you know, lower return asset classes. Okay, great. So something else you hate is, before I talk about something else you hate, why are we talking about things Mark hates? Because it seems like a random episode. So Mark's just finished his book, Uncommon Sense, and that is the common misconceptions of business, finance and investing and how to profit going against the tide. That's the, the subtitle. And I think why this book's going to be a game changer, because I was obviously involved in helping you write it in terms of doing the physical typing and helping you get the, you know, I'm not taking any claims, you Mark's were, book. You but, were involved uh, rather a lot, weren't you? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I... Getting I, the words out. Yeah, yeah I think... One, why this book's completely unique and different, and two, why I think it's going to be really big is because it's very contrarian, but it's not like saying, hey, I'm a contrarian. And it's just, there aren't really any books or articles or anything out there which sort of start from the angle of all the misconceptions and all the mistakes and all the, the kind of wrongs and then getting them out the way so that you're left with what works. So it's kind of like, a, I guess it's like a positive sceptical or a sceptical positive, I don't really know how to, to, to phrase it exactly, um, account on what works in business finance investing. So that's why we're talking about things that Mark kind of really doesn't like. Just to try and cut, you don't really like fluff, do you? Waffle, BS, media hype. Not really, it's not really your thing, is it? No, it's really not. I mean, you see a lot of the stuff in the in the media, certainly in the general media, and, you know, it, it give, they give you ideas on how to invest or you know, oh, buy to let's doing well this month. That's what we've had, I don't know, for the last three years or whatever. Or buy to let's dead now because yeah. of the tax changes or because of this these finance changes. It's all so, so short term and just based on selling newspapers. Yeah. And it, it's just not, A, it's not reality. And B, it's just bad investment advice. Mm. It, it, you know, the... The, the, the motives of most of these publications are just to sell the publication. Fear is the biggest something, seller. it's the biggest seller. You know, you, you watch the news, most of it is negative, most of it is people dying or, you know, what it, what it's, um, the, the reason it's created like that is because it, it triggers a response yeah. in you which, which comes right back from, you know. To survive. Yeah, survival, you know, we, we're people hunting or, or should I say animals and creatures hunting us, you know, many many years ago and genetically we 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 are tend we tend to be attracted to that sort of information mm. because we need to know about it because you know we might need to run away because yeah. we're going to be killed by some marauding invader yeah and it doesn't necessarily service in in the modern world mm. so all that negative negativity on the news or you know the 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 way in which newspapers or hype things i.e. something is, you know, when something's really good, it's actually, you know, they make it sound better than it really is. And when something's worse, they make it sound worse than it really is yeah. because that creates interest and draws us in. It's not the reality. And um, I think I think most of it can just be ignored. Yeah. Most of the best investment and, um, yeah, you know, kind of business ideas and models come from usually individuals just, just cracking on. They find a bit of a hole in something. They find something that works. They refine it and they just keep replicating it. And there's usually a, a bit of a, you know, a, a, a nucleus of people like that who've got good ideas, who've, who share those ideas around and make money from them. Yeah. Something I feel is really important to be able to do, you and I have had dozens of conversations over the years on this, is 
when things look bad, you've got to try and find the spin-off opportunity from those things that look bad. And then when things look good, you've got to be careful not to get too pissed on it, all excited, yeah. and look at what could go wrong. And I think that's uncommon sense, you know, the, the sort of the title of your book. And I think that's what contrarianism is. It's, okay, things look bad, what's the opportunity? Okay, think we, we, it's great, oh, we're all excited. Okay, so stay calm and, and look at some of the downsides. So it's that ability to look at, look, the opposite to the way the masses are looking at it. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Is that I think you I can think call it a balanced view. I think that's one of the most important things. Generally, we have this herd mentality, and again, it, it goes back to genetics and survival of the fittest. If you had, you know, a herd of of, of let's call it people walking along, you know, you're less likely, as as a member of a group, to be attacked individually by you know, some some sort of big animal or, you know, some something about to kill you if you're in a big group rather yeah. than if you're on your own. And um, that's the reason why we, we look at stories like this or, you know, we, we, we behave like lemmings. Mm. You know, we, 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 we see, see everybody else do something and, you know, we usually follow on, you know, the same path. So how do you teach yourself to be the contrarian? How do you teach yourself uncommon sense? Let me just, I just want to expand yeah. on that point. When you come to when you go through a cycle, generally the masses get more and more interested in an investment as you get further into the cycle, and certainly towards the end of the cycle, that's when you've it's got most time. people yeah. interested in doing it. Mm. And the reason for that is because as more people do it, more people want to do it, and mm. um, we all follow along. And of course, most of the juice, most of the profit has already taken place early on in the cycle. So what we really should be doing is looking at what everybody else is doing and, and perhaps if everybody else is diving in, maybe we back off. Yeah. And when you're right in the middle of a recession, that's probably the time to, to jump in. Yeah. Now, you know, obviously that that's quite a simplistic way of looking at it. And there are various points along the cycle where, you know, you you, you you're probably just going to put more in at the early parts of the cycle. And then as it comes to the end of the cycle, well, you don't want to just do nothing, but you might switch to income or yeah. you might not be so capital focused or, or, you know, you might go into assets that aren't going to drop so much and haven't had such an amazing ride through the, through the cycle and, and, and aren't so they're recession proof. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're not so affected by boom yeah. and bust. And, you know, I, I think it's important to listen to what the mass are doing and, and kind of say, well, that's where the weight of the money is. That's that's what they're all doing. And therefore, because the weight of the money has already gone into that asset, because they all think it's great, the gains are already priced in. The price is already, ref yeah. you know, already reflects that. It's already reacted. Mm. Therefore, anyone who's, you know, looking at a new market, and there's not a lot of people there and people are generally negative about it. Well, you know, they may, may think to themselves, you know, if, if they're a good investor, they may think, well, that's a market where, you know, valuations are very low. People aren't interested in that asset class yet. And therefore, you know, I, I can pile in. And then when it becomes the norm in the media and, you know, it's great, all that value will then be priced in and you'll have made money. Yeah. Now, of course... There is a bit of caveat, bit of a caveat to this, because lots of people say to me, "Oh, I found a market niche, or I found a hole." Yeah. You know, I had it said to me earlier on in an interview. I think you guys have found a little rabbit hole here with your business, and you know, of course, you know, I was like, "Well, thank you very much, absolutely." But it's important to understand that if it's completely new and nobody else is doing it, you should ask yourself, "Well, 
you know, is that because that doesn't work? You know, is that because this model is no good and there's no money to be made from it? Sometimes if there's a bit of competition in a market, that means it's a good market and there's money to be made from it. So there are caveats to all of this and you need to test and measure to work out whether it works for you. You know, the, the, the contrarian attitude and, you know, understanding how the media works is, is great kind of on a superficial level. You know, just giving you an idea of what sort of opportunities to start focusing on because there's so many and you need to kind of carve out, get rid of all the noise and carve out the things that, you know, you, you want to actually look at. But then obviously you need to drill deeper and in the end you're testing and measuring, you're taking your own preferences and your own discriminatory ideas out of, you know, the investment decision and just putting it all on a spreadsheet and working out over six months to 12 months whether the thing works. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that because getting to know you over the last 12 odd years, that's something I've found fascinating. I always felt that you were really good at making things black and white and digital and number based and not emotion-based, and I was the opposite. I was very much an emotional kind of decision-maker. So I want to talk about that in three or four instances. The first is, tell me about your dad, because I know a big part of you being able to remove emotions and make good logical decisions were drilled into you by your dad, who's quite a character. And Mark's first book, Low Cost High Life, he talks a lot about his dad in that book. So just give us a bit of a flavour for the intricacies and quirks of your dad and how he raised you. Well, I mean, dad, you know, dad was pretty uh, (laughs) non-conformist. So he was the ultimate contrarian. And, you know, someone who, you know, if if you told him to do something, he'd go and do the opposite. Is any Uh, of that in you? uh, There's there's, there's (laughs) a bit there. But although over the years I've tried to... I've tried to temper it because actually, you know, with investing, it can be good as a kind of superficial thing. Yeah. But then obviously you need to dig deeper. That's yeah. important. But, you know, with life in general, I find these days it's often better to conform in, in many ways yeah. uh, because it saves me a lot of time. Yeah. It gets me to my goal quicker. Yeah. Yeah, there's no point being a rebel for the sake of being a rebel. No, and he'd be like that, you know. He'd turn Give us up. one instance. Oh, well, he'd turn up on a winter's afternoon in town. We'd be in Stamford, where actually where I live now, and he'd walk down the high street in a pair of shorts and a pair of flip flops with his plastic bag, and kind of go in the shops, and everyone would be staring at him, and 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 he'd kind of look back and go, "What's your problem? It's your problem, not mine." <laughs> and um, you, you kind of obviously he was, you know, he'd been thirty years in the Far East, so that created this within him in many ways because it was you know when you're living in the middle of africa or you're living in the middle of indonesia and you're this you know this englishman when you start exhibiting all these kind of non-conformist ways well they don't think it's weird because Mm. they don't know what english people are like anyway and they just think oh yeah you're english oh that's really interesting and of course the more non-conformist he became, the more interesting perhaps he became to many people in those countries, and they th- they probably thought that's what an Englishman did. So, yeah. uh, of course, thirty you know thirty odd years of, of living in that way made him very um, contrarian. Yeah. Now he wasn't an investor, and he wasn't somebody that that made big money. He, he was he you know he didn't pay any tax for thirty years because he worked overseas. And yeah. when you work overseas, but you had to save money. Didn't and you had to save money. And I I think you got a lot of that from him. Absolutely. So you know my dad had, you know he'd work for three years and then he'd have a year off because he'd be on some sort of contract building a road or a big yeah. water system or something like that. And you know he he'd, he'd he'd then have a year where he had to save his money because yeah. he wouldn't be getting any income. Of course he'd be paid a lot for those three years. 
So, um, you know, that really, from a young age, that drilled it into me. Give us some examples of his real tightness. Well, I'll never forget, you know, being pulled over by a police officer in Indonesia. And, um, you know, all the other expatriates, all the other English and Americans, if you get pulled over, you know, it was you'd be pulled over for not indicating when everybody else is, you know, basically driving through town backwards, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> doing 80 miles an hour in a 30. And so it's very inconsistent. But they'd see a white face and they kind of go, oh, right, yeah, there's a bit of yeah. money. He's not indicated. <laughs> yeah. Let's have him over. So it's all about unfair. But, you know, in, instead of what's right and wrong, and my dad would be like, well, that's wrong. You know, you can't do that to me. You know, mo- most, most English people would, would kind of go, well, do you know what? It's 10,000 rupee, it's three quid. You just pay him and that's the end of the matter. And of course, my dad would sit there and I'll never forget this one time. He, he spent, you know, I mean, this, this was like a significant period, like over, over an hour at the roadside arguing with this policeman about, you know, his non-indication when he was changing lanes coming up to the, you know, central reservation. You know, and in the end, the, the police officer who's probably on, I don't know, four grand a year, you know, gives up and, and kind of waves him on because, of course... So you're just a little no kid sitting in the back wishing yeah. he would shut up. Yeah, my mum's there, like, really embarrassed. Stuart enough, you yeah. know, and all this sort of stuff. And, of course, gets back in the car, that got the little bastard, and then drives off. And, pizza um, Hut, tell us about Pizza Hut. Yeah, Pizza Hut. We used to go in there and this had happened most Saturday mornings. We'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd, after he'd messed around for most of the morning, we'd get into uh, the, the local shopping centre We'd go in for a pizza. A pizza at that time there was like three quid. Dad would go in, he'd get the salad bar. It was, it was um, a one-trip salad bar. Yeah. That was the system. He'd go in there and um, he'd get the, 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 the salad bowl. And he, and he would he would basically build the thing. <laughs> yeah. up, you know, so he'd put the basing. Because my dad was an engineer. So, yeah. you know, put the lettuce wise so oh, it could yeah, have more. And he'd, he'd put all the kind of like croutons around there to create a good base so that he could... <laughs> Kind of lift it up right to the top, you know. No, I, I mean this salad bar thing might have been one pound fifty or yeah. something like that, but he he'd do that so that he only had to go up, you know, one time, and, and actually invariably then he'd go up for a second helping, yeah. And um, you know, a lot of the time nothing had happened, but every now and again they put two salad bowls on the on the on the bill, and of course my dad had my dad had just kind of look at it, get them over, and um, they'd, they'd be like, well, this is um, you know, you 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 went up twice. And of course, is you know, it 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 kind of argue. Oh no, that you know, this is this is designed for you know fat, you know, kind of whatever people. Do you see what I mean? Who 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 who, who abuse the system? You know, I'm 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 just here having some salad. You know, and he'd argue the point for twenty minutes. Uh, and <laughs> what did mum think of it all? Mum would be really embarrassed. In the early years, I'd be very embarrassed. But actually, as time went on, I used to find it, it was a bit sadistic, but I used to find it a little bit funny. Cause, yeah. Because, of course, it created all this outrage and um, I could sit there, watch it all, and I didn't get into any trouble. Yeah. Um, which kind of was quite amusing in some ways. But, of course, it wasn't clever. It wasn't, it wasn't the right thing to do. He'd, he'd, he'd sit there for 20 minutes, half an hour, arguing over £1.50 when yeah. he could have gone and made you know, 3,000 quid somewhere else, yeah. you know. Have you ever been a bit like that? Maybe, maybe you've spent a bit too much time to no save... Question. Yeah, no save question, no question. And enough I've, money. I've had to train myself out of some of those ways. Yeah. But, you know, many of them are still within me, well, you know. Which where, you'd want to keep, wouldn't you? Because you don't want yeah. it to completely be gone. No, you know, 
you know, I'll, I'll still be all over the costs and have a bit of a freak out over Christmas, yeah. you know, when everything's gone turbo and, <laughs> yeah. you know, Gemma's been in Selfridges buying a load of stuff and, <laughs> you know, we get home, I suddenly look at my credit card bill and just, right, it's got it, this has got to stop, we've got to get it all under control again. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I still have those moments and I'm still reminded of all that stuff. Yeah. But I don't think it's good to be that extreme with it all, but it, it is, you need to keep an eye on your costs. Yeah, yeah. You need to control this stuff because it can easily creep up and it and it can consume you yeah. and you end up with no business. Yeah. yeah. Well, every now and again, you just kind of check, don't you? You go yeah. back into different areas of the business Yeah. and you just do a spot check every now and again. Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. You, you need to, um, you need to go through, you know, everything and, um, kind of say well what what's the you know the the credit card machine what are the bills been yeah. for the last six printers. months what are the printers what's the stationary costs yeah. what what are the insurance costs all that's up the rent it does it you know it's important it's very yeah. important critics trolls haters as we've grown obviously we've you know i suppose when we have two customers we might have two fans now i think we've trained four hundred thousand people 265,000 on the Progressive Database, uh, nearly 400,000 people on this Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. Let's just talk openly and randomly and conversationally about critics. What do you think? Do you think that uh, we need them? Do you think that some people take it too far? How do you feel if you ever get critiqued? How do you deal with it emotionally? Well, I think the first thing to say is if you don't have critics you're probably not running a successful business or you're not really pushing boundaries mm. you know the, the the bigger you get the more of those you're going to be you see it with i don't know celebrities or big businesses yeah. they're always going to have these people so the first thing is they they probably keep in some way they keep you real so yeah. you know they, they they remind you of your weaknesses because if you often surround yourself by yes people who tell you how good you are and certainly those in your immediate environment are going to be probably quite positive but those outside of your immediate sphere may be a little bit more honest in some ways that's the first thing i think the next thing is you have to look at the motivation behind what the critic is saying if it's somebody offering you some constructive advice to improve your business or improve the service they're, they're getting, then often you look at it and you think, you know what, I can see why this would be good. Let's make that change. Let's let's not do that thing anymore to improve the service for our customers. And they should probably be seen in a positive light. I think critics that are using the platform for a, a means to A, generate you know more interest to their newspaper or their forum or their facebook group or whatever it is i think once you understand that that's their agenda they're trying to say this stuff to get attention remember negative news stories sell get the attention get people looking and you know that creates the most traffic well if they're then monetizing that on the back end i.e they're getting advertising or they're selling services and Mm. deal packaging whatever it is they're selling off the back of that well I think, you know, that, that that's a little bit more, you know, you probably wouldn't want to take that as seriously, um, yeah. you know, because, you you know, they've clearly got an agenda. There's an ulterior motive there and they're not necessarily doing it for the good of customers or, or, or the good of your business. Yeah. They're doing it to generate money from their business. Yeah. So I think the motivation and the agenda of the person doing it is important, mm. you know, Another type of 
critic might be one that just goes on and hates like a, a troll mm. you know maybe their life isn't running very well themselves they're not very successful they feel very jealous you know and 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 often they hide behind this you know computer or, or another profile or whatever pull a load of negative stuff up about you or your your business and that gives them some sort of feeling of power yeah. makes them feel good about themselves which makes up for you know their inability to make a success out of their life or or their business or, or whatever. So I think constructive feedback and criticism. Yeah, I think you've got to know the difference, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, you have. Yeah. I think when it's constructive, you know, and, and, and when it's protecting people, you know, sometimes there are scams or, you know, there are there are things that happen, certainly in our space, that do lose people a lot of money. Yeah. And I think when, you know, it's exposing things like that, where there is a genuine, you know, a, a genuine kind of um, risk to, to consumers and, and, and people investing. I think it can be beneficial, beneficial obviously for the consumer and beneficial to all, all the other businesses doing, you know, good, good, good honest business. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to understand that there are different types of critics, different types of haters or, or feedback, understand what their agenda is and then either ignore it, take action against it or, or you know, maybe change your business if if what they're saying is for the right reason and yeah. they've got a point. Yeah. So emotional mastery is or emotional development, something we talk about a lot. One of the things I really believe will grow your business the most is managing your emotions. And you know, you and I have done things in the past a bit emotionally, me probably more than you to be fair, but we've got some funny stories. I've, I remember you pointing in someone's face and dropping a few bombs on him. And I've certainly flipped out at people. And um, we all, if you speak to anyone who's really successful, they all say, the bigger you get, the more critics you'll get, you need them. So it's kind of anyone who's studied any successful people, they know that. But you take every one of those successful people, it still pisses them off and upsets them, doesn't it? It still gets to mm -hmm. them. Yeah. So how do we develop this emotional mastery, if you like, where there's a difference between us just saying, hey, I need more critics because I'm growing, and actually, when you feel the emotion, controlling it. How do you control your emotions? Well, A, you don't always have to, re you know, if, it, if, if there's a lot of critical stuff coming from one direction and it's not, you know, you've looked at it and it's not, um, you know, there's no basis to it or it's not fair or it's not being done for the right reasons, you can just block it out. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to listen to it. Mm. You don't have to read it. So that could be one one way. The next way, I think, is to have those around you who support you and, and who are actually interested in your success and your business's success. Get them to tell you what they honestly think. Yeah. You know, that's a good, you know, say to them, well, is this true? Do you think, you know, and if it is true, please, can you tell me, just be honest, you know, and, and have an impartial person who, you know, is interested in your success mm. tell you and not just a yes person. I, I think that's 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 quite important something I do you just got to release stress and you've got to generally make yourself you know feel good about yourself and the day if I exercise in the morning and I eat properly and I sleep well I can deal with all, all that sort of stuff a lot lot better than yeah. if I don't do one of three of those things it's weird how how much those three things mean to my life mm. you know having good amount of sleep good amount of exercise in the morning yeah. and, uh, and and eating properly, yeah. I can almost deal with anything. And I'd add yeah. one thing to that, and I've yeah. really valued that in our relationship yeah. over the last 12, 15 years, whatever. When did we actually meet? We met December 05, didn't we? So that's 12 years. Is having someone to talk to that you value their opinion. Oh. 
Even, you know, because sometimes... A we're, business partner yeah. who is invested in the thing in the way that you are. Yeah, and, and understands. Understands. That's really important. And the other thing is the downside will hurt them as much as yeah. it will hurt you because... So A, feeling that you're not alone. Yeah, yeah. That that's important. A, yeah. feeling you're not alone. And B, if you've got someone there who is invested in it and has as much upside and downside as you then your you know their opinion is going to be probably a lot more valid and also it gives you the release doesn't it yeah because normally your initial reaction yeah wired into us hardwired into human beings is to react yeah you know on a keyboard warrior for example or defensive some people get angry some people spit out some people take it all inside and it hurts their esteem you know we all react differently but if you can talk to someone about it, that's the release. And then you probably deal with it a lot better publicly or whatever. So we can literally go on for ages. I've got here, we wanted to talk about capitalism, money, creating more happiness. Uh, we wanted to talk about scalable businesses, proven business models. So we're probably going to have to do a part two. I don't want to keep Mark because he's got to go and do quite an important valuation. But Mark's new book, Uncommon Sense, is very exciting. This literally launches, if you're listening to this on the first day that it's live, today so you need to go to amazon and get yourself a copy now mark's got a couple of special deals going on so if you get just one copy of uncommon sense which you can find on amazon then you get two tickets to the business lifestyle summit we've got quite a lot of big name celebrity speakers coming to that two-day event where you can basically learn how to build a leveraged business that will make you a handsome profit but also merge with the, the lifestyle that you want to create mark will be doing a keynote speech on that as well as some big names I'll probably be along to do a keynote slot on the lifestyle side of it too. So you get that just for getting one book. Now, by the way, that's until the Business Lifestyle Summit tickets sell out. So you'll have to be very quick for that because we normally only have 200 at an event and we're only doing, I think, two of them. So the next uh, offer we've got is if you buy five copies of Mark's book, Uncommon Sense, then he's going to do a private roundtable mastermind for you. So again, this is probably limited to about 75 or 80 people, but go and get five copies and you'll be able to come to our training facility. And Mark will sit on the sofa and for 75 or 8 of you, you'll be in the room and you'll get four hours being able to do one-to-ones, questions with him. So we call it a roundtable mastermind. And it's not very often Mark does these things, so you should definitely take him up on that. And you can come along with as many questions as you like. I think that's a really great thing that Mark's offering to do to donate his time. That's if you get five books of Uncommon Sense, Low Cost High Love. That's his first book. Uh, And also you get put into a draw. Uh, Mark's booked a table at the Fat Duck. That's a three-star Michelin restaurant. I'll be going because I've never missed a good opportunity for a good dinner. Uh, And we're going to take another two people along so you get put into a a draw for that. And then finally, if you get seven copies of Uncommon Sense, he'll give you a 15-minute one-to-one. So literally on the phone, 15 minutes with him. Now, if you want the round table and the draw, and the 15 minute one to one, you need to buy five, and then you need to buy seven, so that's 12. So I know it's kind of a bit complicated, but we just wanted to give you some great gifts for being a supporter of the disruptive entrepreneur, and a supporter of Mark My Words, and a supporter of Progressive Property over the years. This is the 10th anniversary of our business, it's the 12th anniversary of our partnership, so we wanted to sort of give back and thank you, and hey, it's not my time, it's his, so I can kind of do that. So let me, let me just summarize. Today, Uncommon Sense went live, so no more is it a pre-order, it's now live, get it. One copy, and you get two tickets to the Business Lifestyle Summit, you gotta be quick, first 400. Five copies, and you get the Roundtable Mastermind with Mark, personally, in the same room as him. 
with us first, I think 70, 75. And you get put in a draw to have dinner with us at the Fat Duck. And then seven copies and you get to have a 15 minute one-to-one phone call with him. I don't know how many he's doing of them, probably about 30, 35. So it's kind of first come, first serve on that as well. If you want all of that, you need to buy five and seven because one counts anyway. So you need to buy 12. And um, in any of our communities, Progressive Property, mark my words, Disruptive Entrepreneur, just message us, let us know that you've got, uh, send us a screenshot and we'll make sure you get hooked up to all those bonuses. So thanks for tuning in to special double edition of the Disruptive Entrepreneur. And mark my words, and I want to say thanks to Mark Homer. What a great privilege it is. He only writes a book every kind of five years or so, very rarely in the public eye, because he likes going off and doing big property deals. That's why he's gone off now to do his big valuation. So thanks, Mark, and thanks for tuning in. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.